Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and the producer of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students from the course on refugees and forced migration here at the LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the lived experiences of refugees themselves. In our second episode of the series, Amy Wolf tackles what is becoming one of the most challenging topics in forced displacement, climate change. The UNHCR estimates that 90% of refugees are produced in countries that are the most vulnerable and the least prepared to adapt to the repercussions of climate change. Today, climate change is considered the biggest issue on the forced displacement agenda. In this episode, Andrew Harper, the Special Advisor on Climate Action to the UN Refugee Agency, illuminates the increasing complexity behind the drivers of migration since the creation of the 1951 Refugee Convention and the implications of climate change on international protection. Amy Wolf is a master's student in health and international development. Her research looks at health consequences and responses in conflict settings, humanitarian crises, and forced migration. During her undergraduate studies, Amy investigated how financing tools enabled a new humanitarian narrative and contribute to building systemic resilience. For her master's dissertation, she is exploring the role of gender in mental health among Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Acutely aware of the consequences of climate change on health and migration, in this episode she focuses on how climate change compounds existing vulnerabilities and necessitates new protection needs. I hope you enjoy the episode. On Earth Day, the 22nd of April, the UNHCR released a statement estimating that roughly 90% of refugees come from countries that are the most vulnerable to climate change and the least prepared to adapt to climate change. My name is Amy, and today I'm speaking to Andrew Harper about climate change and migration. Andrew is the Special Advisor on Climate Action for the United Nations Refugee Agency. He provides strategic guidance and expertise to inform their response to climate emergencies. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure, Amy. So to set the context for our discussion, I'd like to first go through the evolution of the climate change and migration nexus. Could you tell us a little bit about the different ways in which climate and environmental change has driven displacement? And what are some of the global trends and patterns that we're seeing? Firstly, um, thank you very much for for inviting me to talk about probably what is the, the biggest issue on the forced displacement agenda, and that is how climate and environmental degradation is a, is a driver for uh, population movements, not only migration movements, but um, increasingly having an impact on the causes for violence and then subsequently refugee movements. So if you look at um, the history of um, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which goes back to the post-war period, um, 1950-51, that was the organization was um, established largely as a result of the Second World War and largely as a, um, a, a means to repatriate people displaced by the Second World War. Since then, so this year is our 70th anniversary. Since then, um, the causes for people fleeing has become increasingly complicated. And one of the complications has been that climate change and environmental degradation is becoming an increasing, let's say, reason for um, the increasing, um, let's say, grievances that many communities are having. So 
as a protection agency, as a UN protection agency, we had to take into account that many more people every year are actually being displaced by climate hazards and environmental um, events, extreme uh, weather events, uh, than actually by conflicts. So last year, some three times as many people were forced from their homes due to uh, extreme weather events or, or elements associated with climate change compared to conflict. And so we as an organization, uh, particularly as we, we take note of the fact that you, that you mentioned this figure, that 90% of refugees originate from countries that are also on the front lines of the climate emergency. We're just seeing more and more that um, we have to be more engaged and more lucid on not only what are the impacts of climate change and vulnerable populations now, but what will they likely be in the future? Because for the first time, we've got science really telling us that the situation is going to get worse. And if we see that climate change is a threat multiplier, a vulnerability multiplier, then we can expect that there'll be more people displaced, not only uh, refugees, but also internally. And so what we are doing, and, and you mentioned the migration element there, so we're working very closely with the International Organization for Migration um, and other entities that are involved with migration to see how we can get a better understanding of the reasons why people are moving. And, and again, the numbers are, are, are enormous. Last year, there were some 20 million people who were displaced uh, due to sudden onset disasters, while others are forced to flee because of desertification, environmental degradation, or sea level rises. So each one of those elements are not only forcing people to move from their homes into the local, into the communities, but if you can't find safety and protection and assistance within your country, then people are moving further afield. And I think just in the last, um, what, last 50 years, there's been something like 11,000 disasters are related to weather. And unfortunately, we can only expect that that will, that will increase. And unfortunately as well, we're probably expecting the numbers to be displaced to double by 2050. Thank you for um, highlighting these numbers and statistics. I actually want to disintegrate them a bit and, and discuss how these numbers actually come about because in academia on, on climate change and migration, you often come across the so-called maximalist and minimalist debate. So the maximalist scholars advocate for concepts such as climate migrants and climate refugees, whereas minimalists reject these concepts. So minimalists instead question whether there is an actual direct link between climate change and migration and whether um, we shouldn't be focusing more on the multi-causality behind migration. So when we see numbers, for example, that point out that displacement as a result of climate change is significantly higher than displacement as a result of conflict, what do these numbers actually signify? Is that climate change directly leading to displacement or does it also take into account the indirect effects of climate change? Okay, very good questions. And uh, something from the outset, something which we need to get more information on. But in the, like in the past, we'd be basically saying climate change in itself does not cause displacement. But as we look at melting glaciers, rising sea levels, and populations being displaced from low-lying deltas and small island developing states, we'd probably have to revisit that because there is a direct correlation between 
that climate change and, and the ability of people to survive in, in those areas. But going back to the other the issue that we're being focused on at the moment, it is that multi-causal um, relationship that we're probably most interested in where climate change is a risk multiplier and a magnifier. It, it's, it is driving displacement as, as, as we already know um, because it does compound core vulnerabilities of communities. It does uh, exacerbate grievances and that does lead to um, tension, fragility, conflict, violence, and displacement. So we, we understand the relationship between climate and conflict is not linear. Um, it's complex and nuanced, and it's becoming even more so. Um, the way people, local authorities deal with problems aggravated by climate change is an important factor that determines whether conflict will erupt or not. So one of the key elements that we're trying to do is to understand better why people are moving and in the past, so when I was saying um, when the organisation was established in the early 1950s, it was, I don't want to say it was relatively simple, but you had the emergence of the Cold War, you had um, decolonial situations occurring throughout Africa and Asia. So you almost had state versus state. Um, you had um, West versus East type of dynamics. That's not so much apparent anymore. You're having many internal um, struggles, you're having uh, religious conflicts, you're having poor governance, you're having corruption, you're having competition over resources. So there's a, there's a whole host of reasons why people are fleeing and we're trying to get to grips with what some of the key causes are. So for instance, in the Sahel at the moment, you cannot ignore the fact that the average temperature in the Sahel is likely to increase at double the rate of the rest of the world. The Sahel is already struggling. But on top of that, you have a population which is likely to double between now and 2040, 2045. So the whole, that entire region, the population may increase from some 500 million to 1 billion. So even if there were development gains, they're gonna be struggling because of this dramatic increase in temperature. If you have a dramatic increase in temperature, the, the crops that are currently growing there and the ability of small farmers to survive is going to be greatly restricted. And this is where we start looking at, okay, what are the key livelihoods in that area? 60 to 70% of the, of the families in, in sub-Saharan Africa rely on small farm holdings. Will they be viable in the future when the climate is so much warmer? No, they won't be. So what will that cause? That will cause uh, an aggravation competition between uh, groups. What is the situation going to be like in regards to access to water when water is already extremely scarce? We expect water supplies to drop by anywhere between 20 and 30% uh, based on various models that we're using. So you've got an increasing temperature, double the rest of the world. You've got a doubling of the population. You've got crop productivity probably dropping anywhere between 25 and 40%. Uh, you've got water increasing in, in scarcity. Um, by 20 to 30%. You've already got poor governance in the region. You've got a lack of access to education and um, ability for girls to not only complete education, but even to go into education uh, throughout the region. So, but, so it, putting all these elements together gives you an, an overall picture of some of the challenges that these regions will have.
all these are just complicating like so so the climate emergency is is just adding another sort of um piece of dynamite into a region which is already already sort of on the edge and and you might as well just throw COVID into that as well so um does climate change cause people to move it's it's often hard to categorically state that is the case does it increase the likelihood of conflict breaking out over competition for resources does it make it more challenging for governments to provide the basic services for populations which could become increasingly disgruntled absolutely and unfortunately this is where you have this overlay of um, countries producing refugees and those almost those same countries being on the front lines of the climate emergency so people are moving from countries which are um, getting hotter and have got the least capacity to adapt to countries which have still got a capacity to um, adapt um, but we are unlikely to see let's say a potential for a significant reversal um, of those population movements and something which which we also need to take into account is that it's often the most vulnerable people who cannot move most populations who are displaced by um, extreme weather events and by slow onset climate change uh, find safety within their own communities within their own states however if you do not have for instance assets or connections or the ability to move people have to stay where they are they, they cannot even find they cannot move to urban environments they cannot move across countries so as a protection agency and anyone who's actually interested in, in trying to protect the, the most vulnerable, we really have to focus on, on the communities where they are at the moment rather than reacting to when people cross a border. Because once they cross a border, it's almost too late. So that's one of the issues where um, we as an organization are trying to anticipate in a much more scientific evidence-based manner, uh, the causes for displacement and working with others to try and address those those um, yeah those those key drivers of displacement. It's not easy, um, and it's, it's vastly different to what we've done in the past. Because as a humanitarian agency, we're more involved in reacting to humanitarian crisis, reacting to disasters. But with the climate emergency, we can we should be able to anticipate. We've, there's no excuse now uh, not to be better prepared being ignorant or saying that we're surprised is, is no longer an excuse for uh, inaction thank you for highlighting the nuances and intersections because i think it's important to understand that for understanding the subsequent implications for international protection and asylum claims you started touching upon the role of the UNHCR in providing protection, but do you think that the UNHCR's mandate should be expanded accordingly? And has that already been done? UNHCR is, um, has been working with refugees who have, been, who have fled due to a combination of conflict and, and climate-induced factors for, for decades. One of my first jobs in the organization was back in this will show you show you my age <laughs> but back in the early 1990s when i was um helping marsh arabs uh escape uh saddam hussein's basically draining of the of the marsh marshlands in iraq 
So that was a huge environmental um, sort of like disaster. And you had people fleeing. What were they fleeing? Were they fleeing um, conflict or were they moving before conflict approached them? So we have been dealing with this nexus between conflict and climate environment uh, for a long time. And we don't necessarily believe that there is a need to expand mandates or interpretations. Like one, we don't believe that there's a need because it's sufficiently covered. But two, it's probably going to distract from the real need, which is to provide protection in the regions where people are at the moment. And one of the, um, one of the key documents that, that UNHCR has produced, which you may want to provide a link to in, in this podcast, is it's, a legal it's, a, it's called a legal considerations paper. And that's relating to, um, it provides advice to, in relation to claims for people seeking international protection in the context of adverse effects of climate change and disasters. So what that basically does, it says, when, um, when, should, when does somebody fit within the 951 Refugee Convention? And if they don't fit within the 951 Refugee Convention, what other instruments or guidance should be um, looked at or put into play? And while there is this focus on climate refugees, it's important to note, as, I, as I've indicated before, that the vast majority of people who are displaced by, by climate-induced events or extreme weather events, they don't cross international boundaries. So a refugee is somebody who um, has been forced to flee due to discrimination, persecution, the various elements there related to that, uh, crossing the international frontier. What, the vast, what we're seeing um, the most need is within the countries. So how can we provide that assistance and protection to people who have been compelled to leave their homes in the context of disaster and climate change? They're not refugees, but how do we ensure that they're, they're provided with protection? And so one thing which is really interesting in this job is that you start looking at what have the regions most impacted by climate change so far, what have they been doing? And countries do not generally like to have to wait for the international community to get their act together because if they do, they'll be disappointed. So Africa is probably one of the best examples of um, via their OAU convention um, and the Kampala convention relating to providing uh, protection in neighboring states to people who've been forced to flee uh, disasters and where the government is unable to provide that protection. And they've actually extended the refugee de definition within that um, area, within that region, uh, to take into account disasters. So they're, they're very progressive. Um, another regional declaration is the Cartagena Declaration, which, which applies to populations who have had, been forced to move uh, due to disasters uh, in Central America, sorry, in, in South America. And also, if you look at the South Pacific, the small island developing states, where you've got a great deal of traditional community kinship and solidarity, they have put in a lot of guidance and policies uh, and instruments in order to ensure that the various islands can sort of help each other out. This is, this is pragmatic, practical protection, and this is probably what's required um, at the moment. So bottom line is we're not, we're not looking to expand the, the international legal definition of a refugee. Um, there's technically no um, 
acknowledgement of the term climate refugees, although the fact that we talk about climate refugees does evoke probably, in my mind, a useful um, analogy because people have been forced to leave their homes because of no fault of their home, because of no fault of their own. Um, they've often had to um, leave and not be able to return back to their homes and they're in need of international protection. And I think one of the key elements is that if you, if you want to look at international obligations, it has to be providing protection to people who have had to, had to flee their homes um, due to no fault of their own. So this is one thing which, which UNHCR is very much uh, engaged with. At the same time, um, rather than sort of looking at um, the 951 convention, uh, we need to look for, at how can we um, work with governments on, on complementary pathways for, for those displaced and for those populations which where the refugee law does not apply, um, but that, that they still have a right or to some form of international protection. So if I understood correctly, um, we're more focusing on the role of the international community in supporting governments that currently do not have enough capacity to offer protection or possibly adaptation for their national populations when it comes to climate disasters? Yes, that would be the, um, because when you look at the impact of climate change, not all states are treated equally. So if you've got rising sea levels, you've got countries such as the Netherlands who have got the resources and capacity to withstand that, also the United States. But you've got other countries such as Bangladesh or the Philippines or um, small and developing states who do not have the resources to adapt. So we have to work with those states to see, okay, what is it that we could bring that would actually add value? Sometimes it's more on the protection side of, of, of things that um, we'd be looking to see how can we enhance the capacity to um, operationalize their existing regional instruments rather than create new, new instruments. But some of the infrastructure efforts in order to um, adapt or put in preparedness measures, uh, that's not something which a humanitarian agency like UNHCR should be involved in. That's something which um, development agencies uh, or international financial institutions should be involved in. So every state and every community has its own requirements and we have to um, ensure that our engagement is best suited. So we're, we are an international protection agency um, and that is important, particularly in areas where you've got this linkage between climate and conflict, but in other areas where it's just purely climate-induced displacement, there may be other actors who um, could be better, could, who would be in a better position uh, to provide the necessary support and, and, and guidance. So it's very much a case-by-case -case situation. Uh, but we are, I think, one, one agency that is trying to anticipate where there, there are going to be protection challenges in the future, uh, trying to ensure that states and communities are better prepared uh, but again this is the, the challenges that the the world are facing at the moment are just so much bigger than what one agency um, can possibly be looking to do so we've been we've been working with um, a host of um, of yeah 
key stakeholders to try and determine uh, what is the, the key elements that we should be involved in. But also using, again, various um, instruments and agreements that currently uh, are put in place. So you might be aware of the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction. Um, that came out in, in 2015 and that, that provides, a, that prioritizes um, and looks to reduce disaster risks because again, if we know that the world is going to become more dangerous, then we need to invest more in disaster risk reduction. On the, on the protection side as well, that you might also be aware that 2015 was a big year. So you had the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction, which was put in place. You also had the Nansen initiative um, and the protection agenda, which, which looked at cross-border disaster displacement. That was also endorsed in 2015, and that was a precursor to the platform and disaster uh, displacement. And the idea of that was to bring states together in order to look at best practices, uh, develop a toolbox to, to uh, help states prepare for displacement before disaster strikes, and also uh, provide guidance to improve response to situations where people get displaced. So we're very much involved, um, likewise with IOM, on the platform and disaster displacement. The Paris Agreement, again, sort of the don't want to say the holy grail, but that, that, was, that was a key milestone uh, where states actually referred to migration, human mobility uh, within the context of climate uh, change. That was really important um, sort of step forward. And what happened in um, 2018 from, from the UNHCR side was that we got the Global Compact on Refugees adopted by the UN General Assembly. And that was again another key step forward because that effectively not acknowledged um, and addressed the reality of in, that increasing displacement in the context of disasters, environmental degradation, and climate change uh, needed to be taken into account much more than what it had been. And it also recognised that climate, environmental degradation and disasters increasingly interacted with the drivers of refugee um, movement. So those, those those policy um, documents, those con those instruments have subsequently led to the creation of my position and the desire for UNHCR to be taking uh, climate displacement and disaster-induced displacement uh, much more seriously. And that's also one of the key reasons why we've been so much more involved in um, UNFCCC, uh, which you know is the, the COP's going to take place in Glasgow this year, uh, and other um, platforms in order that we can make sure that when people are talking about the climate emergency and climate change, they very much take into account that it's not just looking at an increasing degree warmer or two degrees warmer, that there's human consequences to this. And it's amazing when you look at the literature in relation to climate change, how little there is about the impact on human beings and communities. It's still very much scientific based. So we're trying to change the, um, the discussion, the discourse in order that people are very much uh, brought back that people are going to suffer. And if we cannot provide protection where people are at the moment, then we'll have to provide protection to where they move in the future. So it just, it just makes sense that we become more engaged and more, uh, let's say, knowledgeable and um, 
yeah, experts in these areas. And with the COVID-19 pandemic this year, we know that the next few years are going to look very different in terms of foreign aid budgets um, and the role of national governments in international aid as well. So in terms of the momentum that has been created towards increasing and expanding protection for people displaced by climate change, what do you think the, the impacts of the pandemic is on, on these efforts and advancements? COVID has certainly complicated the situation. So if you look at um, fragile states at the moment, we, we, we refer to them as a triple C, they're being impacted by conflict, they're being impacted by climate change and being impacted by COVID. COVID we will eventually get over. It might be next year, it might be two years time, maybe five years time, but that is something which we'll be able to address. What we won't be able to address is um, climate climate change, the impact of climate change on communities. And one key sort of um, concern that I've got with the pandemic, apart from the fact that it's a pandemic, is that it has delayed implementation of so many uh, steps which were required for the world to get back on track uh, in order to reduce the impact of um, a warming climate. Uh, we don't have one, two or three years to spare. Like we, we, are, we are already in an absolute crisis situation. So COVID has exacerbated uh, the vulnerabilities of displaced populations. It's made fragile governments even more fragile. Um, it's made communities even more, let's say, vulnerable, uh, particularly in the developing world where you don't have uh, social safety nets. And we've got a um, situation that... Uh, COVID, like climate change and climate emergency, has, is now a risk multiplier. It, it's exacerbated the vulnerabilities of people. Um, and it could also lead to triggering discontent, unrest, fragility, um, conflict. So, but at the same time, we, COVID has illustrated the need for countries to be prepared for upcoming disasters and if you call the pandemic a disaster then um, the climate emergency is, is, a, is a disaster many folds of that so that there is value in being prepared there is value in working uh, cross borders um, COVID like climate, the climate emergency knows no put no boundaries it, it will it will cover everywhere so getting people to think a little bit more strategically about the long-term good um, is one positive outcome from it. Uh, the Secretary General has also linked um, the, the COVID-19 recovery with trying to get economies to uh, emphasise climate positive actions uh, and so like a, a green recovery. So whether we can build back better or build back better and greener, <laughs> as well as leaving no one behind, still has to be seen. Andrew, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been very insightful and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Amy, for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.